Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Gary and I am one of three ruling elders here in the church. Um, the other two are David Fickett and uh, Hugo Porras. And uh, Chuck is the uh, teaching elder. He had every intention, as you can see in the bulletin, he had every intention of being here. Um, and uh, so only teaching elders in the PCA church can administer communion. So it kind of gives you an idea of the, the value that we place on communion. So we will not be having communion uh, today, I'm sorry to say. Uh, but uh, I, he uh, texted me yesterday, apparently. Uh, he's just, uh, just not feeling well at all. So please, please remember uh, him in your prayers. Uh, and I'm very thankful for, uh, for Chuck and my fellow uh, elders for allowing me the opportunity to uh, stand in this very um, special place to bring you God's word. Uh, I've been able to do this uh, a handful of times uh, so far, and it's been probably one of the most growing experiences uh, of my Christian life. Um, and so... Uh, as you know, the biblical qualification for an elder is that an elder has to be uh, apt to teach. And so that's, uh, that's, one of, uh, that's one of our qualifications. And I, as one of your elders, I really want to encourage each of you uh, to uh, feed deeply uh, from the Word of God and uh, uh, never, never, never be satisfied just to snack on God's word. Um, you know, our Lord, when tempted, uh, referenced Deuteronomy, and he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So I want to encourage each of you to, uh, to give yourself uh, to uh, serious, not only hearing and reading, uh, but also uh, study. And even these last two have transformed my Christian life, and that is memorizing God's word, and meditating on God's word, uh, I, and I think if you if you do that, the Lord will. You you need to do that, right? You need to do that to feed your own soul. You need to do that uh, to feed your your own heart and your family, and then the Lord can use you uh, to uh, draw an arrow from the quiver of His word and and pierce the heart of one of His lost sheep. And so, give yourself to that. As we stand on a Pretty significant change. Look to a significant change for our church moving into a new building. Of course, our our mission, our our core mission and vision will not change. Um, but uh, I think we will be a little bit more uh, effectively uh, able to equip and train and do what God wants us to do. So uh, I wanted to remind us one of our core doctrines. And it's this doctrine that really, I think, sets us apart from a lot of other churches. You know, when we got together years ago and a number of different families saw the need and wanted to see a Reformed church come to El Paso, we wrestled with and, we, and continue to wrestle with, you know, why does El Paso need another church? Uh, and, and I think this core doctrine that I'm going to discuss today, I think highlights that fact. Why? another church. Why, um, why is that so important? And so this essential doctrine is the title of today's sermon, and it's summed up in the statement, salvation is of the Lord. And so it's the Lord that 
saves us completely and fully. This might bother uh, some of you, and I only hope it does. I hope it keeps you up at night, frankly. I know this, uh, what I'm about to say, kind of flies in the face of a lot of modern evangelical um, statements that you hear, but he does this. He saves, and he does this without our permission and without our consent. Let me say that again. He does that without our permission and without our consent. And so, last year, I had the privilege of presenting several sermons on the gospel of the, or the, what I called, it should be synonymous with the new covenant uh, from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. Um, and so this is really just kind of a continuation of, of that message. Uh, and so, by the way, as we get into and start discussing these new covenant promises from the Old Testament, there are some that say that these promises don't apply to us. Um, in fact, there's more than some. There's a lot of people that say in modern evangelical Christianity that will say that those beautiful, precious promises in the, in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Hosea, in the book of Ezekiel, that they do not apply for us. They're not for us. That these promises are for future Israel. And I heard it just on the radio this week, Christian radio, that uh, um, Israel, or the A-team, the, the first bench, they fumbled the ball. And, uh, and this was the exact words this one preacher used. Uh, they fumbled the ball, and we, the church, the Lord brought us in to run the ball down the field, right? And at the end of the game, or in the fourth quarter, uh, the Lord is going to bring back that A-team uh, for the final touchdown. And so, as one of your elders, I really want to encourage you, don't buy into that theology. I, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's heretical, uh, but I will say that it blurs, it blurs the, the picture of the beauty and the majesty and the glory of salvation through Christ and Christ alone. So let me give you a little bit of context before I uh, read you the scriptures this morning from Jeremiah 32. The Babylonian army had already begun its siege against the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, because of his constant message to uh, the people had been in, uh, imprisoned in the palace dungeon by King Zedekiah, who didn't like his message. Right? He just didn't like his message. He was tired of not hearing something positive and encouraging. He wanted to hear, you know, maybe a little more Joel Olstein type message, um, and. Uh, because what, what was Jeremiah preaching? Jeremiah had preached over and over and over again that the city uh, would be conquered and that the king himself would be taken into captivity to Babylon, that he would be sentenced there, and that he would die there. Meanwhile, all the other prophets kept saying, no, this is not going to happen. God will not abandon his people. He will not abandon his temple. 
God is on our side, right? Um, Jeremiah continued to say that if they wanted to see God's mercy, Israel should surrender to her enemies. Hey, like that. That they should surrender. And that that would be the way God would show them grace and mercy and protect them. And of course, we all know that Jeremiah 29, beautiful letter to the captives. Um, And then, kind of interesting, in this chapter, he was instructed by the Lord to go out and buy a piece of property from his cousin. And that whole kinsman redeemer, you could preach a whole sermon on just that topic. But the Lord told him, I want you to do this publicly. I mean, he's in the, he's, uh, uh, in the jail in the palace. And so his cousin comes to the palace. They, enact, they do this transaction. He buys his cousin's property. And the Lord tells him, I want you to seal this, seal the deed in a clay jar for a long time. Because you all are going to Babylon for 70 years. And, and the Lord wanted to show, because every time... He mentioned judgment for the people and their inability to obey. He always added a mention of the new covenant, didn't he? A glimmer of hope. And he says, I want the people to understand that someday they will buy and sell land yet once again when they return. So he's instructed to buy this. The Lord says houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought and sold in this land. And then in verse 17 through 23, Jeremiah prays a beautiful prayer, saying that nothing is too hard for the Lord. After all, Jeremiah says he created the universe, he created the heavens. Uh, And then he acknowledges uh, the reason for the coming devastation uh, upon God's people, for their failure to obey his law. And then where where we pick up the reading, and it's in your bulletin, uh, the Lord spells out exactly what his people have done to him and what his accusation is. And then he spells out what he's going to do about it. And so, hear the word of the Lord from Jeremiah, starting in uh, chapter 32, verse 26. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it. And the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day so that I will remove it from my sight. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, 
the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnon to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in, my, and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell safely and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I may not, that, that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so let's look exactly at, uh, at those verses there in verse 30 through 35. What is it that they had done? What was the Lord's accusation against his people? Let's let's just take a closer look at that. It says in verse 30 through 33, the children of Israel and Judah. Now Judah had, um, this was the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel had already been wiped off the face of the earth over 100 years before that by the Assyrians because of their um, unbelief and disobedience. But he says the children of Israel and Judah have done Nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. And they have provoked me to anger by the work of their hands. Um, I think it's interesting to see that he says they turn their back on me. And not their face. They refuse to turn around. That's a reference to repentance. They refused to turn around. They refused to turn about. They refused to repent and he says, interestingly enough, he says, although I taught them, right? It wasn't, it wasn't for lack of information. They had plenty of information. They had plenty of instruction. He says, I taught them persistently. They have not listened to receive instruction. They would not listen. They would not respond to discipline. I think that's interesting. You know, in, in Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord says, you know, I beat you, basically, I beat you black and blue with discipline, you know, <laughs> and, and you, uh, to no avail. Um, 
And then he says, he goes on to say in verse 34, they set up their abominations in the house that is called my name. They defiled um, the temple. They defiled his house. And then the last part I think is really interesting because we need to know that sin and its progression almost knows no bounds because he says they set up high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnon. And what did they do there? They offered their children their sons and their daughters, to the God of Molech. And he says, I didn't command them to do this. This didn't even, this didn't even enter my mind. This is so horrific that they should do this abomination and cause Judah to sin. Recall that uh, last year, in the few times that I had the opportunity to preach, um, I wanted, I wanted you to understand the big picture of the Old Testament, which includes a very clear description of the Old Covenant, but also a very, very, very clear and beautiful picture of the New Covenant as well, all in the Old Testament. And so I had mentioned that the following key words or formula will help you understand the Old Testament. It'll help you understand the Old Covenant. And this was the Old Covenant formula. The Old Covenant formula was if. Started with if. If you will. The Lord said, I will. If you will do something, then I'll do something. Right? What was it? If you will do something first, right? And it was started at Sinai. If you will obey me, right? Obey my laws, my statutes, my precepts, my commands. If you will do that, then I will bless you. I will be your God. If you don't, you will be cursed. So that was the old covenant formula. If you will obey. They never did obey, did they? The Lord said, from the moment I took you out of Egypt, I took my people out of Egypt, never did they obey. It's important to know that. It's important to know and understand the old covenant. Otherwise, you will not know and appreciate the new covenant. Well, if that was the first thing you see, and you see it throughout the Old Testament, if you, if, 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 if you will obey me, What do you think the next if was? They never did that first one. The next if was, okay, if you will repent, I will forgive you. Um, And so you see throughout the Old Testament, they never repented. They never obeyed. And you need to understand that they never did because they never could. If they could, there'd be no reason to have a new covenant. Um, But is that the message? Is that the message we should be preaching? You need to obey and repent? Is that the message we should proclaim to the unsaved world? Maybe. There is a universal call to do that. Um, However, 
uh, you know, that's often the modern day message, isn't it? The modern day Christian message still has a big if in front of it. Not only in terms of salvation, if you will believe. If you will accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you'll be saved. If you will, and then once you're saved, if you will continue to be faithful, you'll keep your salvation, right? If you'll read your Bible, you'll be blessed. If you do this, if you do that. And um, that's often the modern day message uh, that you hear of Christianity. But that's not the message that we proclaim. The message that we proclaim is salvation of the Lord. If you will just exercise that free will of yours, right? If you'll just exercise that free will of yours and obey and repent, won't that work? Um, I don't know if any of you saw on the corner. I hadn't seen this in years, but I saw on the corner uh, about a month ago, on the corner of Executive Center in Mesa, a guy standing there. Anybody see him? He had a sign. What did the sign say? Repent. Right? You know, it, it kind of reminds me of those two Christian... Uh, those two Christian college students that uh, needed to raise money, like my kids are needing to raise money, they needed to raise money for a mission trip, and so they decided, you know what, uh, kind of like, like what my son did, Aaron, when he first went to China, he painted, I think, painted some of you all's house. You know, he did some house painting. He raised some money. Well, these particular two college students found out, hey, we raised money, we got to our mission trip, this is great, maybe we ought to turn this into a business. And so they did that, and they started painting houses in college. They made money, and, uh, but they got a little greedy. And then they decided, you know what, we can make more money if we mix the paint with turpentine and we dilute the paint. And they started, so they started doing that. And of course, being Christians, they were convicted. They felt bad about their sin. And so one of them said, you know what, this, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. This is really, really, really wrong. And one guy said, his partner said, well, yeah, you're, you're right. And so the, the first guy said, you know what? We need to go back and make restitution. We need to go repaint all those houses. I'm sorry, but we, we just did something horribly wrong here. And his one friend said, ah, we can't afford to do that. We really shouldn't do that. Uh, you know, but we'll, we'll stop what we're doing. And so he really re- wrestled with his decision. And later that night, he was lying in bed and, and he was wrestling with what he should do, and there was a voice from heaven thundered and spoke to him and said, Repaint, you thinners. Repaint. <laughs> and so, uh, so the message is, it's, you know, it's, we, we hear a lot of, a lot of talk about, um, you know, free will and, um, you know, you've heard things like, you know, our will is free, but it's, it's uh, you know, not free, it's, it's limited. And, you know, our, our will really isn't that free, is it? It's really limited. It's limited by a number of things. It's limited by external things, right? I can't go as fast as I want down the highway. No matter how many times I've tried, okay? And, and you know, we, we've railed against uh, bumper sticker theology, but one of my reasons why I don't embrace bumper sticker theology is because I drive like a maniac. I really, you know, in fact, I, I, last time I got a ticket, the police officer promptly reminded me with a big smile on his face, if you would have been going two miles faster, I would be taking you downtown. And so I really have a bad problem with my driving. Um, 
And so I'm just being honest with you. But So we have external pressures on our free will. We're not free to do whatever we want from ex- external pressures, right? External influences. But we're also, our free will is limited by uh, our own internal desires, isn't it? Which usually means like Israel, you know, he doesn't say Israel wouldn't obey. He said his people refused to obey. And so, um, before the Lord changed uh, my heart, my choices, my free will was limited to pretty much a menu. The menu of my free will was limited to, you know, under appetizers or main meal or dessert, it was pretty much all sin. That was my choices. And if there was a section somewhere on the back that said salvation by grace uh, through faith alone, I would have had no appetite for it. And so, um, so I'm free to choose from my menu, right? And, and, uh, but, uh, uh, but the choices on the menu are extremely limited. And so this whole free will debate is pretty much, is pretty much summed up by this. Our unsaved people able and free to choose God, or must he do something first? See, that's all we're saying. All we're saying is he's got to do something first. Because dead people just don't come forward for an altar call. Um, Okay, so that was the old covenant, right? If you will obey me, uh, I will do, I will respond. Well, what is the new covenant formula? And it's so beautiful to see. I would encourage you to, to look at these books, uh, these Old Testament books, again, in light of this Old Covenant formula. Look for that, and then look for those key words of the New Covenant formula. The New Covenant is simply this. I will. I will do something first. Then you will be able to do the following. And so... Listen, just sit back and listen to uh, a compilation of some of the beautiful New Covenant language taken from Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea and Ezekiel. I will, says the Lord, I will make a new covenant with them, not like the old covenant which I made with their forefathers, which they broke, which they could not keep. I will search for my lost sheep and bring back the strays. I will remove their hard, stubborn heart of stone. I will write my law in their minds and on their hearts. I will give them an undivided heart, one heart and one mind to follow me. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. I will sprinkle them with clean water. I will wash them. I will put my spirit within them. I will cleanse them from all their sins. I will discipline them, but I will not destroy them. I will be found by them. I will give them comfort and joy in place of mourning. 
I will inspire them to fear me. I will never stop doing good for them. And then you see this throughout. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. That's the I will side of the new covenant. The you will side is just as beautiful. He says, then and only then you will repent and be sorry for your sin. See, the modern Christian message says what? You have to, you have to first have faith. You have to believe. You have to, you have to have work. If, you know, some will say you have to have works to prove that your faith is genuine. You have to repent, and then God will redeem you. And for repentance always, if you look at the Scriptures, always, always, always follows true forgiveness. Not the other way around. You know, the Lord Jesus didn't, didn't look to his people in John 10 and he didn't say, you know what, because you, because you believe in me, because you put your trust in me, because you receive me as your personal Lord and Savior, that now qualifies you to be my sheep. He didn't say that. See, the order is very important. He said just the opposite. He says, you believe because what? You're my sheep. You believe because you're my sheep. And he turned to the other group and he said, you know what? You don't believe? You know why you don't believe? I mean, read, read John. John 6 and John 9. He says, you don't believe because you can't believe. You're not my sheep. That should keep you up at night. Because salvation is of the Lord. And he says, so you will come to me and pray to me. You will have one heart and one mind to follow me. You will seek me. And guess what? You will find me. You will follow my decrees. You will be careful to keep my laws. You will never turn away from me. You will know me. And the summation of the new covenant is I will be your God and you will be my people. And that kind of flies in the face of the modern evangelical Christian message, doesn't it? Which says, oh, God's a gentleman. He doesn't want to foist himself upon you. He wants you. He wants relationship. He wants you to come to him willingly. Nobody comes to him willingly. And he wasn't a very gentleman to Paul, was he? (laughs) Um, And so, what should the Lord do with his people? What do they deserve? Does it it sound familiar, his description of his people? Can you relate to them? I can. They sound just like you and me. We've often talked about where the Lord finds us in the gutter, but really, he he finds everyone in the gutter. But even worse than that, he finds us like he found Lazarus in the grave. And so... Look at what he, what he will do to his people because of their sin. In, starting in verse 37, he said, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger. I'll bring them back. I'll make them dwell in safely, safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. 
I will give them one heart, one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and plant them in this land with faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. How can people have the nerve to say this is not a picture of the new creation for his people? The Lord says, I will do this. And it's interesting that in Ezekiel he says, I'm not going to do this for your sake because you don't deserve it. Um, He says, I'm going to do it for my glory and my great namesake and my great love for you. But what on what basis will God forgive his people? On what basis will he give them a new heart? From where does a new heart come? Better yet, from whom does a new heart come? You know, he promises to perform a heart transplant on the walking dead, doesn't he? You know, I don't know about you, but I I can't figure out this whole zombie craze. You know, my my kids think I need to buy more guns, and they've got more guns than anyone ought to to really have. But I tell them, I got one gun, and I haven't had to use it. The Lord's taking care of me, but uh, why do I need all these guns? Well, the zombie apocalypse, you know. (laughs) Okay. Uh, But anyway, I I can't figure that out. But it is a picture of unsaved people, isn't it? It's like the walking dead. They can't do anything. They can't call out to God. And so, um, but yet the Lord in his promise, he describes his people almost like zombies, you know, in their unsaved state. But yet he reaches into these walking zombies and performs a heart transplant on them while they're still cursing him, while they're still wanting to hurt him and do him harm. And so, Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How can he do this? How can he take someone from verse 24 who not only didn't obey him, but adamantly refused to obey him, and save them, and put a new heart within them. Where does that heart come from? That heart comes from his son, which was ripped out of him, literally still beating. Let's look at that passage again. The children of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Look at Jesus and his youth, left behind at the temple, and he tells his parents, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? The Lord said, they provoked me to anger by the work of their hands. Apostle Peter says he committed no sin. Not even a lie came from his lips. Jesus said, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Jesus pleased the Father, and the Father was pleased with him. Verse 33, Jeremiah says, They turned their back on me and not their face. They refused to turn around. And although I taught them persistently, they had not listened to receive instruction. 
you know, the modern evangelical message is you just need, you just need, you just need information so you can make a decision and exercise your free will. The Lord says, I taught you constantly and you rejected me. But the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to accomplish his work. Verse 34, the Lord said, they set up abominations in the house that is called by my name. Jesus says, my father's house should be called a house of prayer. They have turned their backs on me, the Lord said in Jeremiah. They refused to turn around. When the days drew near for him to be taken up in Luke, it says, he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem to go to the cross. Jesus never turned his back on the Father. But the Father did to him, the Father did to his son Jesus what he should have done to us. The Father turned his back on his son. And so all those Old Testament curses for not keeping the law fell on him. You know, it's interesting, Isaiah says, though he was oppressed and afflicted, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. But you know what? You read the scriptures. He opened his mouth. He did open his mouth. Not to proclaim his innocence to the people that were crucifying him. Not to proclaim that they had mistakenly crucified the Messiah. But he cried out in anguish to God. Why? Why? Why have you forsaken me? I've done nothing wrong. So he could save his people from their sins. That was the promise to the angel at Christmas, wasn't it? In the incarnation. Salvation is of the Lord. He doesn't just give us an opportunity to hear and to make a decision for Christ. He doesn't just help people save themselves. He saves them completely and utterly. Have you experienced the reality of the new covenant? The reality of a new heart, a new affection? What uh, you've heard Chuck mention, the expulsive power of a new affection, a will that is really free. See, nobody's free until the Son makes them free. And then they're free indeed, aren't they? You've heard Chuck mention that there's really only two religions, right? One that says you do something for God, and the other one that says God is doing something for you. However, There's something in between, and that's where most Christians live, in this dry desert region between these two extremes of bold-faced self-righteousness and radical grace. Most Christians live in this 
kind of dry, barren region in between. And the place in the middle is this idea of cooperative effort with God, right? It relegates God's grace to nothing more than a helping hand. I need the Lord's help. Most religions, that's where they put him. And you see, if you look at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, that's a picture of that, right? The Pharisee is praying in the temple to God. He, he, and he says what? I thank you, God. I thank you, Lord. He doesn't say, I thank myself. He says, I thank you, Lord. I thank you that you have not made me like the extortioners, the unjust, the adulterer. I thank you that you have not made me like that, and you have not made me like this tax collector over here. Thank you that you have not made me. And then he goes off to read his religious resume, right? Oh, I've been in church all these years. I tithe, I give. But his, his, this idea that I need God, I need the Lord, he helps me. But that's still not all the way to that view of radical grace that says, you know what, he saves me. And he saves me without my permission. And he saves us without our consent. In fact, all we do is give assent after the fact, don't we? Because it, listen to this definition of consent. Um, consent is to give permission, which could have been withheld. It implies a power relationship where the consent is granted by the party with more power. How do you like that? So consent equals permission, while assent really is just agreement. I will be your God. You will be my people. So in closing, uh, I, I would uh, like for us to take an exam. I know all the college students uh, are, are getting ready for finals next week. And so you don't need a pencil. You don't need a paper. Um, most everyone has heard of 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter of love. Well, 2 Corinthians 13, Paul is challenged by the church in Corinth um, because they just didn't believe the Lord was talking through him. And so uh, he asked them to take an exam. And this is an exam that we all need to take. He says, examine yourself to see whether you are, in fact, in the faith. Are you really a Christian? He says, or do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Have you experienced the reality of the new covenant? the reality of a new heart, new affections that, that continually shape your life and your thoughts and your decisions. I hope you have. I trust you have. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and mercy. Lord, for your precious gospel, that new covenant in your blood, Lord Jesus, that you have solidified the fact that you are our God and we are your people. Thank you that salvation is completely of you, that you have secured it for us.
Help us to always look to you. Help us to grow, to draw deep from the truths of your word. And bless, we pray. Thank you for this Mother's Day that we recognize and honor our mothers, the mothers among us. In Jesus' holy name, amen.